message this morning. One is you might have noticed that uh, the last couple of weeks we've played Spanish worship music before the service and after the service, and you might wonder why that is. And I want to tell you and explain that that's on purpose. And uh, the reason for that is that it's our desire to represent the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, the Bible tells us, is every tribe and tongue and nation. And, uh, you know, Jesus is not just for white people. Can I get an amen, my friends? Amen, amen right? And uh, as a church, we really very much want to, we want to reflect the kingdom of God, every tribe and tongue and nation. And uh, we have a fair number of Spanish-speaking people that are part of our congregation that actually call New River home. And so, you know, I can't speak, I can't preach in Spanish and English because I obviously don't speak Spanish, but we can play a couple of songs and have it be in Spanish. And if that is a way to bless our Hispanic brothers and sisters, then it's worth it. And so what we're trying to do is I tried to find some songs that are common worship songs that uh, most of us would probably recognize. And I don't know if, so here's what I do with it. I'm like, what is that song in English? I know that song. And so now it's kind of name that tune when we're playing that. So uh, that's, the, uh, that's the reason for that. I just want to explain that to you. Um, and I totally can't remember the second thing I was going to say, so we'll just get into 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let me um, start with this. August 3rd, 2010 was a tough day for Manchester because a man by the name of Omar Thornton went into the Hartford Distributors Warehouse and opened fire, killing eight of his fellow employees before turning the gun on himself. Earlier that day, he was fired because they... 27, 2012, Andrew Engeldinger hit the news. He was told that he was losing his job at the Accent Signage Company in Minneapolis, Minnesota, so he opened fire, killing five people, including the UPS man who happened to just be there delivering a package, and himself. So these two tragic examples, we wish we could say that they were isolated, but they're not. Workplace violence is something that seems to happen regularly these days. And you wonder, what's it all about? I mean, in the, for a little while, the U.S. Postal Service had it happen so frequently that we coined the phrase, going postal, to refer to somebody who has lost control and they've gone out, of, they've just, they've gone berserk, they've gotten mad or whatever. It's inexcusable behavior, but it's not unexplainable. It's the ugly fruit of rejection. The way that this works is this. We all experience acts of rejection all the time. And acts of rejection can be minor, simple things. I, I offer you a cup of coffee and you say, no, thank you. That's a, that's a rejection. It could, be, uh, it could be you applied for a job and you didn't get the job. 
That's a rejection. It could be your boyfriend broke up with you. That's a rejection and it hurts. And it can be major, major, terrible, hurtful things like, like a divorce or, or adultery in a marriage or whatever. There's, there's some very big things. But regardless, those are all acts of rejection. And the truth is most of us, we deal with it and we move on. And they're hard, but we, we move on. However, some of us feel rejection. For some of us, rejection becomes a way that we perceive life happening around us, whether we actually are getting rejected or not. And so we're sensitive to the slightest slight. And the person who feels rejected easily gets angry or hurt or offended or crushed or disappointed or you name it. Have you ever been talking to somebody and you said something or did something and then suddenly they just exploded on you. And you go, what? What, what just happened? How did that come? That came out of nowhere. You know what happened. You, you touched a nerve. You didn't know it. You, you said whatever you said, whatever you did, it kind of hit a nerve in that person, and they reacted. That's what the feeling of rejection does. It creates a nerve in a person's soul, and all it takes is something to trigger it, and it's ugly from there. Here's what happens. I want to show you two slides um, that I've taken from a book called Into Abba's Arms. It's written by Dr. Sandra Wilson. She's a Christian psychologist, and it's an excellent book. I would encourage you to read it. But uh, what she says is this. She, she says our relationships, they're like concentric circles. So it starts with the core relationship that every one of us has. And the core relationship that we have is the one that we have with God. God created us to, he actually created us for himself. We were made by God and for God. He made you and me to have a, to be in an intimate relationship with himself. And then extending out from that would be the next deepest intimate relationship that we can have, which would be that between a husband and a wife. And then you go from there to your children and your parents and your immediate family. And then the next layer of relationship would be that with our extended family and our very close friends. And then after that, you have your acquaintances, your Facebook friends, whatever, and your co-workers, and your, some of your co-workers might be close friends, but we distinguish that. The, if they're a close friend, they're a close friend, and then you have other co-workers that you get along for the purpose of working together, and then, and then there's the, the least or the most shallow, the, the least intimate of our relationships, which would be the ones we have with people every day, you, you're standing at the gas station and you're starting up a conversation with the person pumping gas on the other side of it. you just somebody you meet in the elevator or whatever. These are people that you run into that you're just friendly with because that's how you are. We have those kinds of relationships too. Now what she says is when our relationship with God is correct, when that core is solid, now all the other relationships are set up to be healthy. But when that core is not solid, now I begin to use those other relationships to meet a need that the core relationship can only meet. 
So the next slide says that we have this thing called sin. And sin is a force that's constantly pulling us away from that core relationship with God. So that when these other relationships break down, and they all inevitably do, instead of running to the core, we dig in our heels. We say, you know, I'm just going to make this one work. Or I'll bail out on this relationship. How about this one? That person's just a jerk. I'll try this one. And we continue on and on and on. Last week, we looked at rejection in marriage. And uh, many people get married thinking that this person is going to be the love of my life. This person's going to be my rock. And then they quickly realize that person can't be my rock. It's unfair, actually. It's unfair to, you know, I love my wife. My wife, I, she's an awesome woman. But my wife can't be my rock. It's unfair of me to put that kind of pressure on her. She cannot do for me what only God can do for me. And yet, constantly, we are trying to get out of other relationships, including marriage, what only God can give to us. And in sin, we are drawn further and further away. Rather than running back to the core, we just say, well, let's, how about this relationship? I'll try that one. We excuse ourselves and we... Some people abandon the relationship track altogether. They skip trying to find that sense of core in relationships, and they go after achievements. It's the person that says, I'm going to get straight A's. I'm going to get the 4-0. That'll do it. Or I'm going to break all the sports records in school. Or they think that if they just get a high SAT and then they can get into a prestigious college, that'll do it. Or they land the dream job. Or they're driving the dream car. Or they marry the dream spouse. Or the we even have a term for you know, trophy wife. For some people, marriage is an achievement. I've achieved that. Except, just like relationships, achievements can't satisfy that core. And just like relationships in sin, instead of running back to the core, I end up thinking, the next achievement will do it. If I just work harder this time, then it'll do it this time. And it never does. And if you think about work, work is perfectly set up for rejection. Your work, where you work, how you work, is perfectly set up for it. Because in order to get in, you have to qualify. You have to have a certain set of qualifications. Your resume has to have certain things on it. And then you get the job, and you always know that somebody could come along with a better resume and more qualifications and bump you off. And work is, you, you get performance reviews, which is all about your performance. So you're supposed to work harder, and if you do this and achieve these benchmarks, well, then you can get this promotion, and you can have this, and you can have that. The whole thing's driven for that. But then you know, invariably, that you could do all that work and still not get the promotion. 
somebody else who's better connected might get it instead. That happened to my brother-in-law about 15 or so years ago. He was on the track. He was being groomed to be the vice president of the company where he worked. He was that close to it when one of the executives, who happens to be a member of the family that owns the company, decided to hire his cousin instead. And my brother-in-law was fired. So he went from almost being the vice president to being unemployed in a very short period of time and was left blindsided by the whole thing. It took him years, really, literally years. Struggled with the rejection that he experienced there at work. My point is simply this. The workplace is kind of set up for rejection. If you take somebody that has experienced profound failure in their relationships, and that person is thinking that somehow their achievements are going to satisfy this need, and then when the achievements all fall apart, what does that person have left? And some people do turn violent. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't excuse it. It just helps to explain it. That's all it does. How does a Christian respond to it? How do I respond to rejection in the workplace? To, do, to learn that, I want to take a look at a fun little story in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And so if you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25, we're going to actually look at, it's a long story, so I'll give you a heads up, we're going to read a lot of verses this morning, but we'll read it and comment it, and hopefully as we go through it, you'll get the sense for the whole story, because it's a pretty cool story, and we'll learn some principles that come out of this. Now first, if you remember last week, we looked at the story of King David and his wife, uh, Michael or Michal, remember? And how they were two broken people who got married and their brokenness collided and their marriage ended and it wasn't pretty. So here's another story from King David's life, although at this point he's not the king. So he's not the king yet in 1 Samuel 25. David is just a young guy. If you remember, King Saul was the king. He was the first king. And David really skyrocketed to fame after the whole David and Goliath thing. Skyrocketed to fame in the country, as you can imagine. And King Saul was very jealous of David, and so he tried to kill him, and David became a political fugitive. And for 12 years, 12 or 14 years, I think it was 14 maybe, he, he, he was a fugitive out in the desert out away from life, and he was running from King Saul, who was gunning for him the whole time. Now, here's David. Remember last week, we saw how he already didn't have very good relationships. His own parents rejected him. His older brothers rejected him. We saw how his marriage didn't work out so well. David might have failed in relationships, but boy, could that guy achieve. So you go back. He's a kid. Before the Goliath thing, I killed a lion and I killed a bear with my bare hands. He's taking care of the family sheep. And then he was 12 or 13 years old when he knocked off Goliath. And then as a teenager, he's put in charge of a platoon of men that literally gets sent out to do little skirmishes and battles. And everything he did, he was successful in. 
And then one time the king actually challenged him to kill 100 Philistines. What does David do? Kills 200. He was about to receive in 1 Samuel chapter 25. With that as a background, look at verse 1. So it says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing at Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was, and now look at how the Bible sets this up. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Okay, have you ever known a couple like this? Where you look at him, and then you look at her. Then you look at him, and wow, she's... And you wonder, how did he end up with her? Come on, you know you've thought that before. I'm not the only one. He's short, fat, and paunchy, and she's gorgeous. How did that work? Clearly, she went after personality. You know, you know people like that. Okay, Abigail, you can't even say she went after his personality. He was mean and surly. Everybody's wondering, how did this beautiful woman get connected with this loser? And yet, there they were. So, David was in the wilderness, and he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep, so he sent ten men... Ten young men, and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. So David's asking for something that's reasonable. David provided a service to Nabal. David and his men protected Nabal's shepherds while they were out in the middle of the desert taking care of their sheep where there would be bandits and thieves and so forth. It, could, it was rather lawless, if you will, out in the desert. And so David and his men provided a layer of protection for Nabal's men while they had their sheep. And now David is coming to get paid. It's a reasonable request. Let's see how Nabal responds. Nabal answered David's servants. This is verse 10. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Nabal totally dissed him. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word to David, and David responded by saying this, Each of you strap on your sword. 
So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. I don't think David was used to getting rejected like that. And David's immediate response is, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill that guy. Get your swords on. All of us, we're going to go. We're going to wipe this turkey out. He's never going to reject me again. I'll, I'll take care of this problem. And David is on his way with blood on his mind. Meanwhile, back at, the, back at the homestead, Abigail, verse 14, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So the servants know they're not going to get anywhere with Nabal. So they go talk to Abigail. And they even testify. David and his men did a good job. They worked, they, they protected us. They did, they, they held up their end of the agreement. Verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Of course not. I don't think he would be in favor of this. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. Here's David's determination. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. David is bound and determined to massacre the entire place. So when Abigail saw David, verse 23, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet. She said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please forgive me, she says. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool. And folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I, I didn't see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. 
The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life. The life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. Abigail, the Bible describes her as intelligent and beautiful. You and I could certainly add to that list wise and gracious. So here you see what happens. David and his men are coming down the mountain and they've got blood on their minds. They're ready to kill. Abigail puts herself in a very vulnerable spot. It's a mountain ravine. She has no place to go. She sees David coming and she bows down before David. And the first thing she does is she takes responsibility for what happened. I think that's fascinating. Because it's really not her responsibility. It's not her fault. She didn't do the wrong. But she took responsibility for it. If there's a conflict going on, somebody's got to take responsibility. Isn't that one of the first steps to getting this thing resolved and fixed? Somebody's got to own the problem. Abigail owned the problem. And she bows before David. She asks for David's forgiveness. And then she appeals to David's better, I'll say his better self. Because remember, David hadn't said anything yet. He's still steaming. Vessels are still popping out his forehead. He's ready to kill. And Abigail, she continues to talk, and she, and she assumes that David is not going to do what he's thinking of doing. She says that in verse 26. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, and, and since he's kept you from bloodshed. Well, how does she know that? <laughs> David. Everything in front of her says that David's ready to kill. And she says, now since God is going to stop you from doing this, and then she makes this presumption, she, then she prophesies, and I love this, because she speaks not only to David's better self, but she speaks to David's better future. And you see what she says in verse 28? She actually says, please forgive my presumption. But in essence, I see something here, David. And she confirms to David that he is going to one day be king. Isn't that interesting? Because right now, he's just a hothead in the desert. There's, there's nothing about David right now that says you're going to be the king. <clears throat> and yet, she, she, she prophesies, she speaks to the future David, you're going to be the king someday. And when you are, you, <clears throat> you really don't want this on your record. This is not going to help you out when you get there. That's awesome. 
Because the voice of reason has to tell somebody who's burning hot under the collar, hey, look it, don't sacrifice your future glory for this present stupid. You don't, you don't want to do that. And I love that because that's the heart of God. Religion says, don't do this, it's bad. You don't want to be bad, don't be bad, don't do this. That's religion. That doesn't motivate anybody. God says, listen, you don't want to do this. This, this is not who you are. You have been made for this over here. And so this is beneath you right here. You weren't made for the dumpster. You were made for the palace. And, and God always, always, always puts your future and my future in front of us and then lays the choice in front of you. You don't want to trade that future glory for this present stupid. And Abigail does that with David. And not only that, she paid him. She gave him the figs and the raisins and the sheep. and the... So she made it right. How does David respond? Well, let's see how he responds. Verse, 20, verse 32. David says to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. So David confessed. He knew, he confessed what was on his mind. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. And everybody breathed a sigh of relief. Whew. That was a close call. All of us were about to die. And David was about to get a nasty thing on his record. And whew, we, can, we can rest easy now. So what did Abigail do? Four things she did. Let me just review them quickly. First thing Abigail did was she took responsibility. Even though it wasn't her fault, she took responsibility. That's a peacemaker. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Making peace is part of your DNA as a follower of Jesus Christ. You're the peacemaker where you work. You're the peacemaker in your home, in your neighborhood. It's part of, the, it's part of the, the destiny that's built into your design as a child of God. Abigail takes responsibility. Somebody had to. Nabal wasn't. David was going to kill. So Abigail stepped in. Second, she assumed the best in David. While David is hot under the collar and ready to kill, Abigail says, now, you know, God's... Since, since God's kept you from this bloodshed. So she assumes the best in David. In other words, I love that. You know, it, it doesn't take a genius to see the bad stuff, does it? That's usually the most obvious. Stands right out in front of us. It does take faith to see the best in someone. And then to believe that in them. It's very necessary for quelling a conflict such as this. 
Third, she brought a gift. So she, she wasn't empty-handed. She paid him. Here you go, David. Here's all this stuff. So she made the wrong right. Fourth, she communicated a better future to David. She appealed to his future and where he was going so that he could see, so that David could make the decision. You're right. I don't want to sacrifice that for this. You're right, Abigail. And he could make his own decision and own it. So she, she kind of gave him the respect, if you will, of making his own decision about it. She, she was brilliant in how she navigated this whole conflict. And now how do we apply this to you and to me? I want to first talk to those of us who might be feeling like David. Maybe you're responding like David. You're going to work and you're grumbling. You think the man, the man in the big office is sticking it to you. He should pay you more. He should give you more. He should, he should go easier on you. He should do this. He should do that. And your attitude's sour. The truth is, it's just sour. So you're responding to this like David. You're feeling rejection. Because you know what? That's going to happen at work, isn't it? You're going you're gonna to get stiffed. That's how work works. It's going to happen. The question is, will you guard your heart? Or will you let your heart just get soured? And so a couple of things, if you're responding like David. Because honestly, David's not the hero in this story, is he? There's other Bible stories where David is clearly the hero, and we love this guy, but this is not one of his better days. So if you're responding like David, a couple of things. It's time to reassess your relational core. Rejection is a redirection. Rejection is a redirection. Back to the heart of God. When you're feeling rejected, I propose to you that the reason why you feel sour is because you've placed way too much stock in work. And you've lost your relational core. And the rejection is a redirection. And God's calling you back to himself. You're not going to be satisfied. The truth is, if your boss came back at you and gave you the big raise, that still isn't going to fully satisfy. It'll be nice, sure. But then something else is going to tick you off. Then what? You see where that goes? It's endless. Somehow I have to have a solid core here. And so that rejection is a redirection. It's time to reassess the relational core. When our kids were growing up, they were little. We used to play games in our front yard because we had these two trees. And the two trees made perfect end zones for all kinds of things. And so we used to play uh, sharks and minnows. That was one of our favorite games. You tag between the two trees. And we played Red Rover, Red Rover. I always liked that one. I liked Red Rover, Red Rover because it ends in hugs. Because Red Rover, Red Rover works that way. You split up two teams and you face one another and, okay, Red Rover, Red Rover, send, send Caston right over and he'd run over and you've got your arms locked and he'd try to break through your arms and, you know, and then you end up grabbing him and giving him a noogie and a wedgie and, you know, 
He was so cute. He had a lisp. Hey, that's... <laughs> anyway, I could hear his voice. Okay, so, you know, pardon my, uh, pardon my going back. So we're ending this. We're going to this Red Rover, Red Rover, and you grab him. I wonder if, if rejection, when you feel rejected here, if it's not God, God's version of Red Rover, Red Rover, if the whole point of that rejection is to drive you into the arms of God. I wonder. Rejection is a redirection. And instead, in sin, what we tend to do, as I mentioned earlier, is instead of run into the open arms of my God, where I need that, I need that core, instead I double down my efforts. I'll have to make more of it this time. I'll just get a different job. I'll whatever. Friends, only God can be your rock. The second thing is this. Your God, your relationship with God, your belonging to God is unbreakable. It literally is unbreakable. Nothing you can do can separate you from God's love. That's right out of the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 literally says that. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Literally the only one who can separate you from God's love is you. So the rejection, I propose, is a redirection. Run back into the arms of God. And then the third thing there is this. I need you to know that even Jesus needed a rock. Jesus needed a rock? Yes, Jesus needed a rock. I love this in John chapter 16, 31 and 32. This is the last night of Jesus' life. It's the kind of the time of the Last Supper with his disciples. And Jesus says this. He says, well, just before this, the disciples are like, oh, we get it. You're the Son of God. They had this big aha. And Jesus responds by saying, you believe at last. I can almost hear the joy in Jesus' voice like, dudes, you're so thick. How many miracles do I got to do? Three years of teaching and miracles. And, and now finally the boys get it. You're the Messiah. So Jesus is like, you believe at last. What an exciting moment that must have been for Jesus. But he goes on to say, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. So it's like this great moment for Jesus, but it's kind of clouded by this reality that he knows they're going to ditch him shortly. And yet Jesus says, yet, this is the cool part, yet I'm not alone. For my Father is with me. Don't, don't overlook the humanness of Jesus in this statement. I believe fully in the deity of Christ, but remember, 100% man, he's also 100% God, 100% man. 
Don't overlook the humanness of Jesus in this. You guys are going to ditch me. You're going to leave me all alone. Yet, I'm not alone because my dad's with me. And I propose to you that you can have the exact same experience, that you can know the Father the way that Jesus knows the Father, and that the exact same thing can be yours, that even if they all leave you alone, you're still actually never alone because you're with your dad. Your dad's, he's with you. That's what we mean when we say, you need a rock. Look at, we can't be each other's rock and your job can't be your rock. That would be like, that'd be like me drowning in the middle of the ocean and then a lifeguard comes along to rescue me. All the lifeguard can do in the middle of the ocean is keep both of us afloat for a little while, but eventually we're both gonna drown because it's the ocean. No matter how strong a swimmer the lifeguard is, he's not gonna be able to save both of us in the middle of the ocean. No matter how great your job is, it's gonna let you down. No matter how great your spouse is, they're gonna let you down. No matter how great your church is, they're gonna let you down. No matter how great whatever, it's gonna let you down because they're just another swimmer in the ocean. You both need a rock. You both need something solid to stand on. Even Jesus needed something solid. If Jesus needed something solid, you and I certainly do. And Jesus' rock was his father. You and I can have the same rock. So if you're responding like David, I want you to hear that. Now, if you're responding like Abigail, maybe you're the Abigail where you work, and I want to say, good job. You actually don't work for your company. You work for Jesus. Good job. You actually represent him where you work. And you know that, you're intentional about that, about representing God where you work. Good job. You're not caught up in the same politics, the same crap that everybody else is worried about. You're not caught up in that every day. Good job. You're, you're, not, you're, you're working hard, and you know that Jesus will reward you. You're thankful for every raise, but it really doesn't matter to that doesn't phase you either way. You're still working hard. You're still giving it your all. Good job. You're a calming and reassuring presence in your office because you've got the rock. And wherever you go, the rock goes. And your office knows that. They feel the rock when you walk into the room. Good job. Good job. So Abigail's the hero. Good job. I just want to give you one last closing tip, just a very practical tip. And some of you are going to think it's goofy, but I tell you, it works. I can tell you from my own personal experience, it works. I, I encourage you to try this as often as you can throughout the day, on any given day, as often as it comes to your mind. Take just half a second, breathe. I am his, he is mine. 
Remind yourself of the rock. I am his, he is mine. Can you say that with me? I am his. Now the amazing part of that is the second part, isn't it? I am his, well yeah, he's God. But he's mine. That's the amazing part. The God of the universe is mine and he's yours. As often as you can throughout the day, I encourage you, remind yourself of that truth. I am his, he is mine. Because that brings you right back to that relational core, right back to that rock. That's where you and I need to live from, not from out here. These relationships and that job and those achievements and those things, they're just, they're great, but they're not totally where my soul needs to be. So, I am his, and he is mine. I just want to, normally we like to close a service by having you stand and sing, but this morning I want to ask us just to stay seated for a few minutes. And Aaron's going to lead us in this closing song. And... Well, I'll be honest with you. I'll keep it real with you. I This week in preparing for this message, the Lord reminded me he brought... So I have fallen into both of these traps, the achievement trap and the relationship trap. That's, that's my story. And uh, I mean, there, there was a time a few years ago where I felt like everything was falling apart. And I, and I literally felt like the work of my hands was being torn apart. It was the most scary feeling. And then a few years later, realized, okay, relationships. I was going after relationships and really placing way too much emphasis and thinking that somehow this is going to make me, this is going to be the mark I leave. I'm going to impact people. That all blew up in my face. The, the, this is closer to home, I think, than many of us might want to admit. So, we need to sit still for a second and allow the Holy Spirit to drive this into our hearts. And uh, so as Aaron sings, we'll just sit still and process this, okay? And uh, you can sing along with him if you'd like, or not. But I want you to think through God, you are mine and I am yours. Lord, I've strayed from the rock. I've tried to find other, I've tried to find my rock in other things, other people, and it's left me high and dry, God. So friend, this morning, hear God, your Father God, he's calling you back to himself. He says, come on, Red Rover, Red Rover, come on over. He's calling your name, come.
to see, to thirst. Awaken, first love, come awake. And do Speak.